Welcome to Hearthside Salons. I'm Heidi Hornbacher of Pagecraft Writing. Each week we bring you conversations with creators and innovators to feed your creative fire. One of the many challenges facing the would-be filmmaker is the fact that to be a success, you can't just be an artist, you also have to be an entrepreneur. Documentarian Sarah Moshman exemplifies that make-your-own-opportunities mindset and isn't one to wait for the phone to ring. As a storyteller, Sarah is drawn to tales of ordinary women doing extraordinary things. That's where the relatable humanity is. That's where she can make the world a little bit of a better place. Her ethos is work hard, be kind, and don't take no for an answer. Today, we talk about the challenges and magic of documentary filmmaking and following her dad's wisdom that if you make the film you set out to make, you did it wrong. So Sarah, welcome to Hearthside Salons. Thank you so much for joining me. I was excited to talk to you first and foremost because um, A, you just have this, you exude this kind of badassery of just like, I first encountered you on the legal, um, the legal issues Zoom with Justine Jacob. And I thought you were a lawyer. No way. What a compliment. (laughs) You you have this like authority, like this command of authority. And like, I I was sitting there going, oh, there's these two really cool lawyers that are talking. And of course, because I've met several producer lawyers, it made sense to me that you were also a filmmaker in addition to being a lawyer. But I Googled you and I was like, oh my God, she's not a lawyer. She just- What a compliment. I remember when they asked me to be on that panel, I was like, are you sure you want me to talk? (laughs) At least Justine will be there to be the actual lawyer. But yeah, when you deal with enough legal documents, which as a filmmaker, you do. You pick up a few red flags, that's all. Yes, you certainly do. Um, So, and one of the things that I love about your films as a sort of body of work to date is that, there's this thread of women overcoming amazing odds. Mm. And um, I wanted to just talk to you about like what, like what draws you to that? Yeah, that's true. That the through line continues to be like ordinary women doing extraordinary things and, and you know, trying to make the world a safer place for women to exist in. Um, certainly that has been a theme for me my whole life. Um, it kind of really came into focus in college and then, um, in 2012, 2013, like really just having such a better awareness of the lack of representation of women in the media and feeling like I worked in, um, on reality television shows for my first five years out here in LA. I worked on Dancing with the Stars for 10 seasons. Wow. um, As a field producer. So I was um, shooting and interviewing the celebrity dancer couples as they would train for their tango or Mm -hmm. waltz or whatever um, for live on Monday nights. Somehow the show is still on. Without Um, you. And it was, yes. And it was uh, a great experience, but I think it kind of, dulled the glow of celebrity and Hollywood Mm. and everything for me. Um, It was fun for early 20s um, and that time. But after a while, you're sort of like, okay, you know, what else? You know, there's so many incredible stories to spotlight. um, And that show serves a great purpose, certainly. But I wanted to create media that really matters and that I had more ownership of and that um, the stories weren't being shared elsewhere. So that really kind of after living in like a celebrity culture bubble Mm. for five years and that was all that mattered. um, I really wanted to get away from that. And so ordinary women doing extraordinary things and showcasing strong female role models and kind of the underdogs and women achieving incredible things um, just became, yeah, part of what I wanted to do. And then sort of one project leads to the next and mm. leads to the next. And you sort of, you position yourself in that space. And I'm very happy to be in that space. I love that. Well, especially now as a mother to a daughter wanting yes. to present strong role models in that you don't have to be a celebrity. You don't have to be superhuman to be exactly. a positive influence, a positive force. Absolutely. Yeah. And then certainly, you know, I became a mom in late 2017. And so, um, and part of my impetus for making Nevertheless, which is my latest feature length documentary about sexual harassment. I mean, that 100% came from the impending parenthood um, to a child, specifically to a daughter um, and just feeling like, oh, I'm going to have to shepherd through the world, a girl 
Mm. Um, and what does that look like and how can I sort of make the world a safer place before she gets here and when she gets here? And, um, and that's profound, you know, any parent will tell you how profound the shift is when you're thinking about the livelihood and, and well-being of another person. So yeah, yeah, between motherhood and, you know, the media's lack of representation of women, certainly still today, but definitely, you know, six, seven years ago when I really dug into this, um, kind of all that together really informs the work I want to do. What, so I know specifically with Nevertheless, you really really wanted to share stories of not just women, but different people, male and female and non-binary who had experienced sexual harassment in the workplace or in the community. How did you, how did you find the stories? Yeah. So nevertheless, I went into it thinking like, okay, I want to talk about the people behind the headlines. Mm -hmm. I want to, I don't want to just hear about Harvey Weinstein anymore, Bill Cosby or Louis CK or whoever, like those stories are important, of course. And the victims of those perpetrators absolutely deserve justice, all of that. Um, But I felt like there was a real gap in the landscape about people you've never heard of. Again, this idea of like ordinary people, I wanted the audience to see a piece of themselves in one of the stories that mm. were shared, as well as between the experts that you hear from in the film. So the film is really a combination of seven individual stories of men and women who have experienced harassment or assault. And then there's like a chorus of experts that weave between the seven stories mm-hmm. to help kind of make sense of the larger systematic issues at play from toxic masculinity to LGBTQ rights and white privilege, intersectionality, and a lot more. Um, And so I wanted the audience to be able to see a piece of themselves in one of the seven stories that was shared, or at least feel some empathy for one of these stories. Um, And so, yeah, I worked with a wonderful research producer named Carla Romo. She's a good friend. And um, with her help, we really combed through all the stories because there was so much coming out every day. This was like late 2017, 2018. This is prime me too time. Um, every day there was another article or another expose or, you know, Mm. video. Um, and so we started to notice patterns and notice that it was just so much about, oh, how the mighty have fallen or the splashy lawsuits with, you know, sensationalized headlines and, oh, he had to pay 30 million, you know, it's just like, okay, there's so much focus on the perpetrator and not on the victim or the survivor. Um, so with Carla's help, we really... Um, came to try to put together a a puzzle of each of the seven stories giving you a different slice of the issue. So we didn't want all seven to have the same kind of beginning, middle, and end in terms of sexual harassment and speaking up. We wanted to address sexual assault as well as gender discrimination, a hostile work environment, Mm. um, showcase as many industries as possible because so much of the news was focusing on film and tech Um, We address film and tech in the film, but we wanted to also have like a blue collar worker. And, you know, we have a transgender woman of color who experienced gender discrimination in the restaurant industry. And we do have a male survivor as well. This wonderful man named Heath Phillips, who was pretty brutally assaulted once he joined the Navy um, in the 1980s. And just being able to hear that vulnerability from a male survivor, I think is so important. And, and men are largely left out of the Me Too conversation on the victim survivor side. And I think that further perpetuates these harmful, toxic masculinity ideals as if this isn't happening to men. And sure, it's not happening in the same numbers as it's happening to women. But if you don't acknowledge that men are survivors of assault and abuse as well, then they just feel left out and marginalized mm-hmm. all over again from, you know, when it initially happened to them. So yeah, it's a, it was a process to find the seven stories, but I'm so grateful for the people that decided to lend their stories to us and to the film. And I think it's, I think we, we, we showcase a pretty broad spectrum of yeah experience and we can never possibly encapsulate everything in one film. But the goal is really to just have the film be like a jumping off point for conversation after. I love that. And I, I want specifically having the male point of view, I thought was so great as a, I used to teach self-defense oh, and, yeah. and I would teach, we taught mostly women, but we also taught men and we had, you know, bringing men into the conversation so that they understood what we go through and then understanding that they also go through assault and mm-hmm. need to recover and need to recover their sense of self. And I feel like it's, it was such an important way of bringing 
both genders together. Mm-hmm. It's like, we can't do this alone. We all, we have to work together, you know, to, sh- to shift this cultural conversation. So it's like, to me, when I saw that the guy, you had the guy in there, I'm like, oh, same thing. That's so great. Yeah. And also just one thing I learned in the making of the film was to, was for, we should stop saying these are women's issues because then it completely yes. absolves men of even listening on further past those words. So if, if a man hears, oh, this is a women's issue film, then he's going to feel left out or excluded yeah. or, well, I'm not part of that. That's their problem. So, but that is completely, that's in error because this is, so it's happening to us and we have to solve it. Right, right. So it makes sense, you know? So just so often our language is so important with the way we even refer to women. Like Jackson Katz has an incredible TEDx talk about this um, and how much our language matters and Jackson Katz is featured in nevertheless. So I'm paraphrasing here, but even just the way that we talk about the statistics of what happens to women, for example, we say, you know, 10% of teenage girls got pregnant last year. I'm making that up. Instead of saying 10% of boys got girls pregnant. Right. You know, again, just an example, but it's just that, like, where did the boy go? He is part right. of it. You know, like, where did the man go? And so it's, we, we absolve their, their blame, their, their role in the problem. And then how are they supposed to feel part of the solution? It just feels like, oh, that's just happening to women over there simultaneously. Yeah. And then, oh, by the way, you have to solve the problem too. Yeah. So it's, it's important even in our language how we refer to these issues as well. So I'm even training myself to stop saying women's issues because I think that's kind of perpetuates the problem a little bit. Yeah, it was so important. And I, I, that's, I love that they're saying that, that just, it's about being, it's a human problem. Yes. It happens to all of us and how do we all work together? Yeah, so. absolutely. What did, was there anything that surprised you that you learned in making that film or? Oh, so many things. Um, there were so many aha moments in making nevertheless, especially even just like keeping track of my own emotional health when hearing mm-hmm. these very sensitive, intense stories. And they would just kind of sit on my heart for days, weeks, all the way through edit, you know, it just really, it was a motivator to have, to hear all these traumatic stories as well as something I had to really be mindful of. Like I felt like it was seeping into my psyche, you know, hearing so much trauma and pain so yeah. now that the film is out, it's just so nice to share the stories with other people and feel like their justice is being served, even in just people hearing their stories. Um, but I'll say one thing, one aha moment for me was like, I feel like I went into Nevertheless thinking like, oh, I'm making a film about sexual harassment in the workplace, full stop. But <laughs> what I very quickly realized is that's a, that's a fool's errand. You can't really talk about sexual harassment in the workplace without talking about all of the aspects of gender-based violence in and out of the workplace. Like what, that's an arbitrary part of the equation. And um, this wonderful man named Rashad Beale, who's featured in the film, and he worked for an organization called Peace Over Violence. Yes. Um, he, yeah, he's awesome. He gave this great metaphor, which is not featured in the film, but just really helped me understand. He said, we need to think of society like a tree. And even if you can manage to cut off a branch of that tree, let's say one branch is sexual harassment in the workplace, that's nice, but you still haven't addressed the roots. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the perfect way for me, the way I envision this project is like, I thought I was over here making this project. And then immediately you find all of the other branches and the other roots. And you're like, oh, well, we can't even go over here and talk about this unless we've really talked about toxic masculinity, how we raise our children, our legal system. Like there's so much to this, whether you're talking about the workplace or harassment in general. So um, that was a big, <laughs> a big pivot moment, I think for me to realize that this was much bigger than what I mm. had imagined. And it was like, okay, how do I take these seven stories and all these expert interviews and distill that into like a cinematic, entertaining, informational piece, which is no small order. We had 532 pages of transcripts, I believe. Oh my lord! Um, I'm a I'm an old school type where I print them all out and highlight them. I like to be able to like flip through my binder. Yeah. Um, and somehow that became an 80 minute film. So it was a process. I'm at that point right now with a couple of my projects where I have like my hundreds of pages of spreadsheets, and I'm just like, how do I boil this down into a away each day? Yeah, it's gonna be a very That's very awesome. lengthy. Well, so then turning to losing sight of shore from before, nevertheless, 
as a former rower, oh my gosh, awesome. I know I was like, um, <laughs> how on earth did you come, did you get, come up with that story, connect with those women? Like, oh my gosh. Well, I love that you're a rower because I am not a rower. So it's so great. It's delightful to talk with other people who really know the sport. Um, So yeah, this Losing Side of Shore, for those that don't know, is um, it's my second feature length documentary that I finished in 2017 and I started it in 2015. And basically it's this unbelievable true story of uh, four women who got in a rowboat, a pink 29 foot ocean rowing boat that weighed one ton. Wow. Um, and they rowed it physically rowed, so no sail, no motor, um, across the entire Pacific ocean from America, all the way to Australia over 8,000 miles. Um, it was supposed to take six months and it ended up taking about nine months to complete. Oh God. It was a three stage journey, uh, from San Francisco to Hawaii, Hawaii to Samoa, Samoa to Australia. And they would spend about a week on land in between each stop. So it was about nine months, nine months or so in total. Um, Unbelievable story. If you can imagine hearing that that was about to happen, just put yourself in my shoes. So like two and a half months before they were going to leave. So late January, 2015, I get an email from this wonderful woman named Fiona Tatton, who's a blogger in the UK. She runs a blog called Womanthology UK, which shines a light on extraordinary women. Um, And she had interviewed me previously about my first film. Um, And she just sent me this very innocent email. I'll never forget (laughs) in late January, 2015, when I was like super busy, you know, like before, before I had kids um, (laughs) and thought that my days were quite full. Um, And so I get this email from her that's like, hey, super innocent. Hey, Sarah, I just heard about this story. These four women, they're called the Coxless Crew. And they are planning this record-breaking, record-setting journey across the Pacific Ocean. I thought you might want to know about it. It was just like, oh, there it is, right there in your lap. Um, And I love thinking about this moment because, as I said, I felt I was very busy. I wasn't looking for a new project. I was literally leaving town the next day for eight weeks to go on tour with my first film and to be screening it. So, you know, the filmmaker life cycle is, is yeah. multifaceted. And I was just not in the headspace of like, oh, I need a new project to work on. Um, so I just love this moment because I could have continued on with my day and been like, yeah, that's nuts, good for them. And right. nobody would have blamed me, <laughs> but oh. something about it just sounded so extraordinary that I said, all right, well, I mean, I'm happy to Skype with two of the rowers, if they're interested, if they want to just know what GoPro to buy. Like I had no intention or expectation going into this call. And the next day, by the end of this hour long conversation, I was like, oh, I'm making this movie. This is unbelievable. And by the way, no one was telling their story. Like if you can imagine hearing everything I just told you about 8,000 miles, three stages, yeah. four hours a day, and like, nobody's going to tell that story. What a tragedy. And so I, I guess I assumed that they'd be like, oh, we have ESPN on board or National Geographic yeah. or somebody. And I think it just continues to tag back to this original idea of like representation of women on screen. And, you know, they had tried in their own way to, to you know, to get production companies or networks on board, but not to any serious degree, certainly. So they were definitely in need of a storyteller. And although I knew nothing about rowing, I still don't. <laughs> um, I had no idea how I was going to pull this off. None. No budget to start with. Um, I just said, okay, well, I'm going to figure this out because this is too this is too extraordinary to pass up. And so um, I got to know the rowers over Skype in those months before. And they got to know me and they watched my previous work. And um, yeah, so no more than two and a half, three months later, I was standing on the dock in San Francisco after spending four days with them and their family in San Francisco um, as they were preparing to leave. And I bought them cameras and I taught them how to use the cameras and the hard drives and the microphones so that they could tell their own story at sea. Um, Cause there was no camera boat, no follow boat. That was my next they, question. Oh my God. Yeah. So even if I had wanted to go with them, which I didn't, <laughs> um, there was no way to do that. Um, so I think I mean, that's part of what was attractive about it to me because I didn't I wouldn't, mind, I wouldn't mind meeting them in Hawaii or Samoa oh, or Australia. That was great. Yeah, I mean, it was great, but also stressful because I never knew when they were going to be there. Oh, so also my entire, you know, this sounds like pales in comparison to what they were going through, but 
behind the scenes, you know, I'm at home trying to raise money and trying to get this project off the ground. And I have no idea if they're going to row for a week and be like, this sucks and turn around. <laughs> I have no clue. I have no idea what I'm doing, but the, uh, they had this wonderful guy named Tony as their shore support. Um, and so he was my go-to guy. So he wasn't on the boat either, but he had the GPS tracker and knew exactly okay. where they were. And he could say like, based on their progress and the winds and the currents, you know, I think they'll be in Hawaii around this time, but I'm booking a flight to Hawaii and Samoa and then Australia. I'm talking yeah. three days before. I mean, it was just mad. Oh my God. A producer's nightmare, truly, because yeah. If you want to hire a crew or get equipment, oh man, it was really stressful <laughs> getting there at such a last minute, you know, especially international travel, you yeah. have to have and like permits and all this. Um, it was quite a challenge to make this film, but no more challenging than actually rowing the Pacific Ocean, which is what they were doing 24 hours a day. So I never felt like I could complain in a good way. I felt so unbelievably inspired <laughs> Because anytime I was like, oh, this is so hard. How am I going to pull this off? You know, I, I would be applying for grants. I was getting rejected left and right from grants and, you know, having a real hard time raising money for this film, even though I thought this is such an extraordinary story. Like, why won't anyone fund this? Um, I just would think, or I could literally go to the Pacific Ocean in LA and be like, oh, they're out there. Like, I have nothing to complain about. They are physically rowing the ocean. So it was challenging on all fronts. It is a miracle that, spoiler alert, they made it all the way to Australia. Uh, they set two world records. They didn't break two world records. They set two wow. world records. Um, they're the first team of four, first team of women to ever row across the Pacific Ocean. Yeah, because why would you want to do that? <laughs> I don't know, but they did it. And it's, um, they're just amazing human beings. They're not professional rowers. They're not professional athletes even. They trained certainly for the journey. Um, they worked really hard, but they, you know, I think that's what I liked about it. Again, it's the ordinary women doing extraordinary. Yeah. I felt like, oh, I could be one of them. Like if I put my mind to this, I could do this too. And even by the end of their journey, I was like, I kind of want to be on the boat. Like by, by leg three, I was like, do you need a sub? Cause I will come. I will, you've convinced me. This is amazing. Wow. So um, when you finally got all of this pile of footage from them, from their experience on the boat, was there anything that like shocked you or anything you were like, I wish we could uh -huh. use that, but we can't use it or. Um, yes. Well, the good thing in terms of the footage was it wasn't all at once in a good way. So once they got to Hawaii and I was with them in Hawaii, I was able to collect the hard drives from the first leg and then I could go home and log all of that sure. and start to make sense of it and give them new hard drives. So it was like, I was really leg by leg. And by the way, as a director, it was so hard to know what was happening each day because I don't know what they're filming. I don't really know what they're going through. It's, I wrote this article in Movie Maker Magazine. It's like how to direct a film from 5,000 miles away. So when people this year, 2020, are talking about COVID and all this remote directing, I'm just like, I kind of know about that. Um, at least they're not in the ocean. Yeah. So, um, but the way that it worked is they actually blogged every single day. So all four of them took turns writing a blog and they had like a sliver of internet, um, spotty internet at best, but they would up, they would write in the notes app on their iPad, which they powered through their solar panels. Um, and they would write a blog each day. They'd take turns, the four of them, and then they would upload that blog to their social media manager and she would upload to the website. So basically every day I could go on their website, read what they were going through, what they chose to share, uh -huh. as well as see their progress on the map. Um, so sometimes they would row, they would exert themselves the equivalent of 50 miles in a day, but only go two in the right direction. Oh no. So it's just this heartbreak. You're just like, oh my God, are they ever going to get there? And so you can imagine all their friends and family and supporters are just like, oh no. And some days they'd be very triumphant and get like, you know, 50 miles in the right direction. Sometimes they'd go 10 in the wrong direction because of wind and currents and all of that. Oh, no. So anyway, each day I could read about what they were going through emotionally in the blog, as well as see where they were in the world. But remember, whatever they wrote in that blog, I have no idea if that's been captured in any way on camera. Right. And so you're like, oh, this is interesting. Oh, wow. They were having an argument or like so-and-so wants to go home. You know, you're like, oh, wow. We have no idea what's actually being captured. So as the filmmaker, you know better. So you're like, okay, 
So I would then email them a list of questions for them to answer like in interview on the boat. So that's how I did it. It was like going through and I would say like, Emma, you mentioned, you know, you're really struggling today and you're kind of falling out of love with rowing. Can you talk about that? Here's some questions to go with that. So that way they're not filmmakers. They're not storytellers. They're not used to being on camera. So I wanted to give them that structure of like, hey, in the next couple of days, can you go in the cabin by yourself and answer these questions? And it was truly remarkable because the closer that we got to each other on land and as like I was their storyteller, they were, you know, telling the story, um, the, the more they would open up on camera on the boat. And it was really beautiful to see because in the first leg of the journey from uh, California to Hawaii, for example, it was all very kind of like the wind is this, the currents are that, the weather's this. And you're like, I don't okay. really care about that. Like, I don't really, that's not gonna, there's no movie there. Right. So it was really up to me to get to those deeper layers. Like, who are these women? Why are they taking this journey? What is it gonna look like when things go wrong, which they go wrong all the time on a boat in the middle of the ocean alone? Um, and what are you going to do when, you know, to recover, how are you going to continue on? And so it's really a story about the power of the human spirit. Mm. It's about friendship. It's about perseverance. So again, the rowing is really kind of a B story or even a C story to me. The A story is the friendship sure. and, the, and the perseverance. So that was a challenge because so then when I would get the hard drive in Samoa, for example, I'm just crossing all of my fingers and toes that there's anything on the hard drive. Right. And that the footage would be compelling, that they'd turn on the microphone, that they would have recorded anything. I mean, there were so many moments where this could have gone horribly wrong and I could have had a whole leg of no footage. Yeah. Um, so the, the risk was astronomical, but uh, oh they God. took it seriously and they really enjoyed, you know, being filmmakers, being storytellers by the end. And, and I had so much footage to look through. You know, it wasn't like Big Brother where they were recording 24 hours a day. Mm. But I did have, you know, maybe 500 hours of footage, I want to say. Wow. And part of my journey as a director with that film was watching all of it. That is not something I could afford to outsource to anyone. Yeah. <laughs> but certainly, I didn't want to outsource that to anyone else because I felt like I had to see as yeah. much of the journey as possible to even know what story I was telling. And so yes. um, it was just such a joy to have that like front row seat to this journey that no one else was going to see. So we always joke that I was like the fifth member of the team. Like yeah. I wasn't on the boat, but I saw a lot more of it than anyone else, which is really cool. That is amazing. And I, that's actually right where I am. I just finished logging all the seven years of footage for one of the, oh one of the documentaries goodness. I've been doing. And now I'm just like, okay, amazing. now what can yeah, someone else okay. boil this down for me now that I did all this? That's incredible. Congrats on getting to that level. That's no Thanks. small feat. <laughs> it's, it's been daunting, but I just want to briefly touch on the empowerment project. Oh, like sure. how did you, so that, I mean, that's when you first decided to pick up a camera right or, or like how did you yeah it was my first feature length documentary I made some shorts out of college and then in film school made a lot of shorts narrative and documentary and I've been making documentaries since I was like 16 years old um I made my first one for a high school English class which is sort of a really overachievery thing to do because <laughs> they assigned a paper and I was like I'm gonna make a film and you've like, just oh. revealed a lot about yourself <laughs> yeah <laughs> Sarah but it shows you how much passion I had and I wanted, just have wanted to do this forever. Um, so anyway, in 2013, I had done 10 seasons on Dancing with the Stars. I had done five years in the reality TV space. I was just really hungry for a bigger opportunity that was more my own and that I could, you know, have more creative control over. Um, and just, I, I think around that same time, I realized, you know what? The phone's just never going to ring with that perfect opportunity at least not for women. It doesn't seem to work that way. You really, if you want to an opportunity to come your way, you really have to prove yourself um, and show that you're capable of doing that. And a lot of us have to crowdfund and, you know, pave our own path. And that's really what happened for me. It was like, okay, I've made a couple short docs. I've done all this work in reality TV, but no one's just going to like understand that I want to be working in documentary or that I want to be in this like female empowerment space unless I show them. And so I came up with this concept of driving across the United States and interviewing inspirational women from all different career fields. So again, representation of women mm. in the media. And so not celebrities, not women you've ever heard of before, but I want to hear about a pilot and an athlete and a mathematician and a 
four-star admiral and an astronaut and a stylist and a theater director. Like where, what about all the stories of the extraordinary women I see all around me and yet don't get the spotlight of the media at all. And so that was really the impetus for, for that film. And so I did a Kickstarter campaign um, and I was in a minivan once we raised the money, a little bit of money to get the project off the ground. Uh, myself and four other female filmmakers, we got in a minivan and we drove uh, over 7,000 miles wow. across the U.S. from L.A. to New York through 22 states. And we ended up interviewing 17 women in total within one month. Um, wow. And it was just so much fun. It was like an empowerment bubble. Like we were... It sounds amazing. Yeah, it was the best. Like even if we didn't record for a second, it would have just been the best journey. And we also, this isn't really in the film, but we also mentored aspiring female filmmakers in each of the cities that we visited. So that's fantastic. Yeah. So like in Denver, we were like, Hey, this is where we're going to be on set. And we had women like write in, they didn't have to have any experience. Didn't matter what their age was. We just said, if you want to join us, you know, we'd love to have you. And we weren't like, go get us coffee. We were like, no, here's how you set up a light. Here's how the camera works, you know, sit in on this interview, like ask us questions. And so it was really this like multi-layered empowering experience. Well, I'd much um, rather do that, drive across country and interview people than row across the Pacific. So I want to sign up for <laughs> yes. that adventure. There's two films of journeys. I was just yeah. laughing. I'm like, one film's about driving across the ocean, then we're rowing across the ocean. <laughs> so now you're going to do a, 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 a pilot story. Yeah, exactly. Well, but um, it sounds like you had a really strong community of people that there was awareness of, you know, that these women would write in and say, hey, I'm going to, I'm in Denver. Can I come be your person we were we worked with um girltalkhq.com which is run by asha daya my good friend and so she helped us do like a call out and so we were like these are the cities we're going to be in these are the days if you want to join us on set you know right in here um and that was just such an extra layer of empowerment you know we were feeling so inspired by the women we were interviewing and then we really wanted to you know add that layer for the women that were joining us on set and say you can do this too um, it's just always about, you know, reaching back, paying for it, paying it forward. Yeah. Um, and so we finished that film. It was a month long road trip. And then it was about six or seven months in post. So we finished the film in April, 2014. And that film, we did the empowerment project. We've been distributing in schools and workplaces, corporations, organizations all over the world for the past six years. It's still screening today. Wow, that's great. Which is amazing. Um, and I just learned so much about grassroots distribution. Mm. Um, I work with a wonderful distributor called IndieFlix. Um, I'm working with them again now for Nevertheless. Um, but just really this idea of like, what if your distributor is awesome and you all roll up your sleeves and do the work together? And it's really more about social impact we make money as well. It's like that, that intersection of impact and revenue and really trying to start conversations about gender equality, representation of women on screen. We have a discussion guide that goes with the empowerment project so that schools can have like a curriculum to follow up with after watching the film. And we've done, we stopped counting, but we've done well over 700 screenings of the empowerment project all over the world. We've worked with brands like American Girl and Microsoft and Charles Schwab and Nordstrom. And it's just, it's the little film that could to me. I'm just like, I had no idea what we were creating and and that it could really spark this movement. And it's been, it's, you know, we waited a few years to do any kind of digital distribution. And I'm so glad that we did. We really focused on this educational window um, and in some ways, I almost wish we had never gone digital in some ways, because when you put your film on an iTunes or Amazon, it sort of cheapens the cachet of having it as an educational tool. We found sure. like if somebody if, if somebody can find your film for ten dollars on the Internet, then why are they going to pay five hundred over here to license it educationally? So right. it was a really great the whole thing has been such a great education and distribution strategy, grassroots, social impact, all of that which I imagine is partly why you wanted to write your book. Yes. What an excellent segue, <laughs> Heidi. <laughs> yes. So, um, you know, fast forward to 2020, here we are, COVID-19. Um, to put it lightly, nevertheless, the distribution strategy, we pivoted majorly. You know, I got to premiere that in person. If you can, if you can believe it, I had an in-person premiere in February before the world crumbled. I'm so glad we did because it was magical and amazing and, and so lovely. 
Um, but with IndieFlix's help, we pivoted to a fully virtual model. So we've been screening nevertheless in schools and workplaces. And it's been wonderful, honestly, um, such an unexpected blessing. But um, not being able to sink my teeth into a new film and be in production and travel, like so much of my work is out there, you know, not right here. Um, and so I just, I've been meaning to write a book. I've been wanting to write a book about everything I've learned from making three feature length documentaries independently. Like none of these projects someone hired me for. Mm. They were all just seeds of an idea in my brain. And then bringing on really talented people to help me execute and fundraising and distribution. I've just learned oodles. And uh, I sometimes consult with other filmmakers and I, I teach workshops, I do speaking engagements. And I just started to realize, you know, I've got a lot of knowledge here and all these buckets. Yeah. How can I bring it all together? And, you know, I've been working with a literary agent and trying to pitch this to publishers for years and it just never got any traction. And so, you know, when this year came around and um, I just thought, okay, well, this will be my creative outlet. If I can't go out with a camera and make a new project or be in production on something, then I'm going to, you know, connect, dedicate a certain amount of time each week to writing this book. And so the book is called, oh, I have it right book, here. It's called, um, Empowered Filmmaking. This is me and my daughter, Bryce. I love that picture so much time. with the baby and the camera <laughs> on your shoulder. This is me. Yeah. I mean, it's just, um, I wanted to put her and I on the cover because it just, I think so many of us, when we become pregnant, become moms, feel like we have to hide it. And I have certainly yeah. felt that way too. It feels like people are going to say, oh, she's not capable or she can't yeah. handle all of this or oh, she's a mom now, so she doesn't have time. Like, all of that is true. <laughs> but at the same time, we are more than capable of doing the work and doing it well. And and by the way, when you become a mom, your, your toolkit and your well of empathy only increases. So right. I just wanted to make that statement that, you know, we're mothers, we're here, and we, we make films too, and we have a lot to say. So um, yeah, so it's called Empowered Filmmaking, How to Make a Documentary on Your Own Terms. It's I self-published it this year, which is also really empowering and very on brand, I'll say. Ultimately, yes. yeah, what was I waiting for? I can just write the book, just like I just make the film. Um, and so I use my three films as pretty much like case studies to, you know, tell the reader all about how I did everything. And it's really like, how do you run a crowdfunding campaign? What how do you apply for grants? What does it look like to bring on investors? to how to use a camera, audio, lighting basics, as well as impact, distribution, interview techniques. So it's it's a really nuts and bolts how-to. Um, and my hope is that people just have it as a reference. Maybe it's not something you'd read all in one sitting, but have it on your shelf. And so at different phases of your project, you yeah. can go, oh, interesting. How did Sarah navigate yeah. bringing on a sales agent? I'd like to hear that. Yeah, like um, help people so strategize that. next steps. Yeah, so it's been fun and it's on Amazon, on Kindle and paperback and, cool. and the feedback's been great. And I'm That's just glad it's like in the world, you know, it's just- Yeah, it's well, we'll definitely, we'll link to it. We're gonna, I, you know, when I put these out as podcasts, I link to everything. I'm just really grateful that it's done and it's in the world and, and it's not gonna go out of style. So it's, it's no. something that I think I can- kind of tag back to in my work for years well, to come so and it's the perfect holiday gift for the documentarian sure. in your life <laughs> exactly <laughs> I love it what yeah. so as you work to distill all that knowledge down and figure out the book like what do you think there's something like the thing people are most surprised about in documentary filmmaking or you know, like something yeah. most people like realize they have to overcome Certainly. I, I realized like, and so much of what's in the book, honestly, is what I didn't learn in film school. Like I went to film school and people often ask like, is that important? And I just think that's up for each person to decide on their financial situation. Like it's such a financial decision now because it's so expensive yeah. um, and it's not necessary. I mean, it's fun and great and you meet great people. And if you're, you know, really into it, you're going to make great films, hopefully. Um, but I don't think it's essential to being a filmmaker. Certainly the, the, yeah. the barrier for entry is quite low. And just to say out loud, like there's so much I've learned out of film school yeah. that my teachers didn't even touch on. So that's been a real surprise for me is how much, you know, fundraising is a huge part of what I do, whether I like yeah. it or not. If yeah. I want to make a film, I've got to apply for grants. I might have to crowdfund. I'm bringing on investors I'm hosting a fundraising event to get private donors. Like I'm, I'm doing whatever I have to do <laughs> to get that film funded. And that's something I had no idea was going to be such a big part of the journey. Like being a filmmaker equals being an entrepreneur. That's just yeah. 
I love hearing stories of entrepreneurs in any industry because I feel such a kinship with that journey. Like my favorite show is Shark Tank and my favorite podcast is How I Built This. Other than this podcast, of course. Oh, of course. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's, I just love hearing the entrepreneur's story because it's the same thing. It's just, I have this idea, how is it going to come to life? How, who's my audience or my consumer, you know, my buyer? Um, and how do I create enough revenue from it to go make the next one or to yeah. make an impact in the world? Um, and so that's been really an eye-opening part of the last eight years to me is like, I love that you mentioned that you thought I was a lawyer because that shows how much I have learned apparently about legal documents yeah. just out of necessity because there's yeah. so many legal documents that go along with being a filmmaker from release forms to distribution contracts, sales agents, yeah. partnership agreements. Like you pick up some knowledge and I even you have do. a whole legal chapter in the book where I'm like, I'm not a lawyer, so please consult with a lawyer, but here are some things to look out for. Or here's yeah. some documents you may need help with. So you just pick up all this knowledge. I think being a documentary filmmaker or any filmmaker is just the greatest career because it combines activism and art and business, just all in this one very interesting <laughs> package. So um, I just really appreciate all sides of making the film from the creative, like what lens should I use for this? And you know, what questions should I ask in the interview to like, interesting, how much money should I spend that Facebook ad to reach this audience? Like yeah. there's so much to it. So I think it's the more we can embrace our entrepreneur's journey alongside the filmmaking journey, the better off we'll be. And, and so many filmmakers don't want to do that. Want to really be like, I'm an artist. And it's like, right. yeah, me too. But I also want to be like business savvy so I can make more films. Yeah. You have so, to be. Yeah, exactly. So that's and been surprising. People, yeah. The people that are like, I just want to be an artist or the people that are still just sitting at home with the camera, like waiting for the phone to ring. Exactly. And that's, you know, that's just not my style to wait around to be picked or no, that's really it, what the book is about. It's like, you don't need anyone's permission to get started, especially in documentary. If you have a compelling story to tell, start telling it, you know, and the rest you'll figure out. I think that's the most empowering feeling of all is not having to wait around for someone to say, yes, yes. you're good enough. Yes, you're ready yes, I'll give you the money. It's like, of course, throughout your journey, you're going to need to be, get a grant or have people believe in you in crowdfunding or, you know, have, bring on investors. So there's a lot of points at which you need other people's approval and excitement, but, but overall the empowerment of saying, I'm making this film come hell or high water. I will figure this out. This story matters to me. That will drive you through all the hard times. Yeah. I think that, that would be a great little pull quote right there. <laughs> right there. <laughs> it's just, you know, cause it is, it's like, you've got a camera, you just show up and you decide you're telling the story and you know, you figure each little piece out as you go. Yeah. I think people and, are really drawn to that. I mean, instead of being like, I'm hoping to make, or I'm trying to make, it's like I'm making, and then people can be join your, you know, if the train is already moving, they'll just get on the train with you. It's like, mm -hmm getting the train going is the hard part. But if you're like, yeah. this is what I'm doing. I've done this research or I've done this shoot or here's my sizzle reel. Here's my treatment. Here's my budget. Like you're already in motion and people can be yeah. like, Oh great. I'd like to get involved with that rather than yes. no one wants to help you invent it. They really don't. They want to get on board something that's already moving already. Happening. Yes. I think that's been my biggest discovery right now at this doc that I just finished yeah. Putting everything in the buckets of, of, of thematic story elements, basically big, I have a giant spreadsheet now. And, wow. um, you know, it's about a, an artist who is, you know, a British artist who's fairly well known in, in certain circles. And because the train is going now, I all of a sudden had these, these guys that came on and said, we just, we just graduated from, um, animation school and we want to do animations for you because Wonderful. we love this artist. And I'm like, okay amazing I'm like here this sequence would look really cool if it was animated this sequence and I just given them stuff and they've come back with stuff and it's like that wasn't going to be I didn't have the budget to like pay an animator oh, animation for... so expensive that's awesome I know and I really wanted some animated stuff but I'm like oh we're never going to be able to pay for it so I'm like okay cool so I see what you're saying about the moving train makes a big yeah, difference. And the passion that they're just wanting to be involved in something that's happening and they're putting their creativity and their skills in that's awesome what do you think? Cause this is, cause a lot of my stuff is like yours. It's, I'm sitting and talking to people. I'm, I'm getting the story yeah. from these people. What do you think is the best way to connect with a character and get them to open up to you? Yeah. I, I learned that a lot about this with, with nevertheless, truly when you're hearing very sensitive, often yeah. traumatic stories. Um, 
I try to get on the phone with everyone ahead of time um, and really just express who I am, why I'm making the project. I think that often helps just giving people context instead of showing up with a camera and lights and a crew and audio and being like, okay, go ahead, share your pain. Yeah. <laughs> Nobody wants to do that. But if I've talked to you ahead of time and said, hi, thank you so much for taking the time. I'm Sarah. This is what my goal is with this project. Here's why I can, I'm connecting with you. Can you tell me a little bit about what your story is? Not the whole thing, but some of it so that you feel like they might be the right fit for your project or not. Mm. Um, and then kind of just, I think the more people know what's coming, the less fear they have. So sure. the anticipation is much scarier than the thing itself, I find. Um, and so being able to say like, okay, we're going to meet you on this day at this time. We're going to have this people, many people on the crew, you know, also letting them know that they're in charge, especially when it's a sensitive subject matter yeah. saying, if you want to stop, we stop. If you want to cancel this, it's canceled. Like you're not under any obligation to share your deepest pain. If suddenly you have a change of heart. I mean, obviously that would be hard as the filmmaker. Yeah. But I don't want anyone to be on camera sharing something so personal if they don't actually want to share it, because then it's sure. just going to be a headache for me anyway in post-production yes. when suddenly they're like, I don't want to be part of this anymore. Yes, I rescind my permission. Exactly. So yeah, just the more you can be vulnerable yourself so that the interview feels more like a conversation, even though it is an interview. Um, I often find that I look like quite a clown when I'm interviewing people because I'm just like, you know, or I'm crying, but making no noise. Yes. Yes. I know. I'm like, <laughs> or you're laughing. You're like, <laughs> you look nuts, but it works. <laughs> so, um, I am very conscious to not make noise during an interview, but I definitely want to be engaged. I, I don't know about you, but if you've ever been interviewed by someone who's not even giving you eye contact, it's weird. It sucks. I mean, and you just feel like, where should I look? First of all, and are you even listening? Are you engaged with me? So I do everything I can to just lock in and make them feel seen and heard. And that's all you can really do is just give them the space to tell their story in the most authentic way possible, because you're going to, you're going to go back with that hour of footage and turn it into two minutes of sound bites or whatever, but yeah. you need to make sure you got everything you need. Of course, the pieces are there, but um, yeah, I also end every interview with saying like, is there anything else you want to add? because I, there's always space for more. And most people are like, no, I'm good. Or they're tired. And they're like, no, we're done. Like, <laughs> just leave that later. space. Cause there might be something that they didn't get to talk about that, that is really like sitting on the tip of their tongue mm. and they might, they might just let it out. And that could be the most powerful part of yeah. the interview. So I always want people to feel comfortable that they're in charge and that, you know, no one's trying to exploit them or like, this isn't a reality show where we're like, got the bite, you know, like it's not that at all. It's, we want this to be as real and true as we can make it. And, and also you're, you got to share everything that you wanted to share so that they leave the interview feeling like, okay, that was fine. You know, or, yeah. you know, that was really empowering to be able to tell my story. So, um, yeah, I think it just comes with time and experience. All of us, you know, get better at interviewing people, the more we get to do it. Um, but especially with sensitive subject matters, it's really tough and you want people to feel nurtured and welcome and also and also it's your crew right you don't need you don't need your crew just like on their phone the whole time or talking and laughing when the subject yeah. is super serious and I've definitely had that too where you're like can you guys rein it in like it's like yeah can you not be like playing video games in the back when someone's sharing their pain you know it's just it's also setting the tone with your crew and be like this is what's happening today we're going to hear a story of sexual abuse it's going to be intense like is everyone okay with that like just making sure everyone knows what's going on and that, that the respect is mutual between everyone and that we're all gracious and kind to each other. Um, Cause you'd be surprised even just like one person who's not paying attention or being rude in the back or just, you know, not aware of what's happening yeah. really kind of ruined an interview. So for sure. I think this was yeah. a lot of, a lot of setting the context and setting expectations exactly. and just holding the space in the room for like safe, safe space for communication. Absolutely. I love that. And I also love what you said before about why you started the empowerment project, because that's actually kind of the same reason I started these hearthside salons oh, is I just wanted to be able to talk to different ordinary people about what, what's their story. Like, how did they get into what they're doing? And like, what, what do they want to say about it? And like, because exactly. we all learn from each other. So I just. Exactly. And then that's what was so great about podcasts, about documentaries, about cameras being lighter and cheaper. And we all yes. have a pretty great camera on our phone now, you know, in crowdfunding, it's just, 
there's so many tools available to us. There's really no reason why we can't tell the stories that matter yeah. to us. So yes, it's great to have a bigger budget and fancier lenses and all of that's great. But story is really at the core of all this. Yeah. If you don't have a good story, you could have the greatest camera, the greatest lens, the greatest cinematographer, but if you don't have a story to tell, you've got nothing. So it's just really honing in on that is really important. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, I know we have at least one documentarian on here with us. So I wanted to share, Zusana, did you uh, have any questions for Sarah? How do you like choose your subjects? Can you talk about mm -hmm. that? Um, but I would say, generally speaking, it's like listening to your instincts. It's like, if you find a character interesting, then chances are other people will as well. I think it's just paying attention to people's habits, like what people respond to, what creates empathy, um, and then being able to pull that out and showcase that in the interview, in the, in the edit, of course. So for me, it's just, you know, when I came across these rowers, for example, they're going to row across the Pacific Ocean. Obviously, the journey itself is extraordinary, but the project really wouldn't have popped without each of them being a different character and having being open on camera. So even in those first interviews with them that I did over Skype, like very similar to this, I would Skype with them and, and record it. And I would cut it together into like a very first sizzle reel. So before I had ah. spent a dollar, I just said, I thought I interviewed each of them and heard their backstory and who they were and what they were hoping to get out of the journey. Just like, I really asked the big questions before I spent a cent, like not even bought a domain name, nothing. Um, and that was really, really useful because if they had been not interested in being on camera, kind of flat characters, um, not emotion, you know, emotive, yeah. emotional, it would have been a very boring film. Um, so I think it's those initial conversations and trying to see like, what could be the conflict? And I don't mean in a reality show kind of way, yeah, but, no. but what is going to be the central internal conflict and external conflict between yeah, the well, characters? How are they going to react in these situations? Who knows what's driving them? Um, and so in those initial conversations, I just saw these four women that were so different from each other and they, they were such different characters and roles and they were all inspiring to me in different ways. And I saw a piece of myself in a couple of them. And I think those kinds of instincts are great with any character of like, okay, do you think people will be inspired by this person or empathetic of them in their journey? Like, is there other multiple layers of a story to tell here? Like with the rowing, it's like there's the rowing and then there's the women and their interpersonal journey. Those are two parallel journeys. Um, and how will I be able to showcase all of that? So mm. yeah, just who do you find interesting? Chances are other people will as well. And then is there enough to kind of like suss out in the texture of their story to, you know, make it through a feature film or a short yeah. film? Like what is going to be the arc of their journey? I know I struggle the most with the edit because I'm like, I think everything they say is interesting. So <laughs> boiling the, the hour interview down to three or four minutes, I'm like, oh my God, that's hard. the hardest. Editors thing are worth their weight in gold. That is for sure. Finding a good editor that you like working with. Oh man, that is half the battle. <laughs> what, what advice would you give your 13 year old self? Ooh, 13. Okay. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I, I guess I would say to my 13-year-old self, don't worry about comparing yourself to anyone else. Just go on your path, pave your own path. I wish I had embraced this attitude of like, you don't need anyone's permission. You don't have to be ready mm -hmm. to get started. Yeah. Like that's something I developed in my 20s. Like to give that kind of empowerment to a 13-year-old girl, I mean, that's really cool. Sort of like pave your own path. You're capable of anything. I think there's a lot more of that messaging now for 13 year old girls. Um, but at the time, you know, we all get so caught up in the the teenage angst of it all, the body image stuff. Yeah. So I wish I hadn't wasted so much time on that and been so more, much. Yeah, just more, just just to tell her, look, you can do anything. Just work hard. You know, be kind, um, and don't take no for an answer. Like you'll find a way. I think that's for any 13 year old, any 13 year old person. Yes. Yes. Should Fantastic advice. Yeah. <laughs> what is like, every documentary starts with an idea, right? And you have this big plan for your documentary. At the end, usually you end up with something a little different. Really different, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so was there anything like 
surprising or what is the most surprising thing in in mm. the transition from where you started to where you ended up with the film? Yeah, I, I think you're you you got it in the question. Really, it's that's what documentaries that's what's so magical about documentary, different than narrative. You know, with narrative, you're going in with a script. Of course, the actors are going to bring it to life in a different way that you maybe didn't expect and move it around a little. Uh, but ultimately, in theory, you're going to make a version of the script that you wrote or, you know, whatever that you took, that you decided to make the film about, whereas documentary is completely the opposite. It's like, I think it's important to go in with some kind of plan or vision. And the, the more films you make, I think the clearer your vision can be. But these are real people and real scenarios. And are they going to make it across the ocean? I don't know. <laughs> so, um Certainly that's, I think the magic of it is you have an intention, you have a greater idea of a vision of like, here's how the, I often think, here's how I want the audience to feel after they're done watching this film. I want to mm. think about that from day one. So with Losing Side of Shore, it's a perfect example. I didn't want the film to be overly technical, overly informational about rowing. I wanted anyone to be able to watch it and think, wow, if they can do that, then I can do fill in the blank. And the the tagline of the film is everyone has a Pacific to cross. Ah. So I never wanted anyone to be like, it's just a film for rowers and like rowing enthusiasts right. and athletes and extreme sports, because that's not me. That's not the film I wanted to make. And truthfully, any other filmmaker would have perhaps made a completely different version of the film and maybe gone way more into the weeds on the rowing and the technicality. That's just not the film I wanted. That didn't excite me at all. It was like, who are these women? How, why were the, why would, who does this? Why would anyone take this journey? Um, and will they make it, you know, the, the inherent drama and conflict of, are they going to make it or not? Yeah. Um, you know, that film just evolved every day with like the way that their journey took twists and turns and, that was what was so exciting about it. So I just think documentary presents such an amazing opportunity for change and growth and evolution. And sometimes we resist that as the filmmaker because we have this rigid yeah. idea of what it should be and what we thought it was going to be. But um, my dad, who is also a filmmaker, puts it so well. It's like if you put if you make the film you set out to make in terms of documentary, you did it wrong. Oh, I love, I love that, that because it's like, oh yeah, this is real life. You know, this is really. We're, we're moving and twisting and it's such a great reminder just as a human to be flexible and to be adaptable and to yes. go with roll with the punches um and so there's just a lot of magic that happens when you're making a film you you, you figure it out you find a way even if you have to wait longer or it takes more time or your your main character turns out to be not your main character like that's okay like it's just finding a path and, and just trusting the story so so have that initial vision but make room, make room for the changes because that's the magic, totally. Well, and I love that. I feel like even you just saying, make the movie that, you know, what, think about what, what, how, what you want people to leave the theater with, what feeling, that helps me already think about how I'm going to dive into this edit tomorrow. Right. You know, it's oh, just like, good. that's I'm your really, star. That's your yeah. star. Yeah. And I'm, I'm really excited to read your book because, you know, distribution is my next big, you know, giant obstacle. And, so uh, Looking forward to the climbing it. And Susanna also asked, where can we watch your films? Where yes, so um, The Empowerment Project is available on iTunes and Amazon. Losing Side of Shore was on Netflix for three years. It's the happy ending to the story is we licensed it to Netflix worldwide for 100, in 190 countries. Nice. Um, and it was subtitled in 25 languages. It was such a dream come true to work with Netflix to have it on the platform. It is no longer on Netflix because it was a three-year deal. I see. Um, but it is on iTunes and Amazon as okay. well. And then, um, nevertheless, my latest film is not available anywhere online because we're doing the educational model for sure. now. So anyone can host a screening of the film in their workplace, in their school, by going to neverthelessfilm.com. And my distributor, IndieFlix, can help make that happen. And that's where I saw it, in one of the hosted Yes, yes. Things. And we do have screening, public screenings from time to time, so you can tune in on one of those. And, and the book is available on Amazon. Great. Yeah. Well, Sarah, thank you so much for making the time. And um, good luck and congratulations on baby number two. Thank Very you. excited for you. <laughs> and I just feel like I've gotten, I got so much out of talking, talking with you. And I want, I'm very, I'm like re-energized to go back into my own edit tomorrow. That It's good to walk away and just get some extra, extra yes. juice and go back in. It's good to take breaks. <laughs> yes. And you know, we're not alone. We all go through this and like, 
pulling out the story and find, whittling down. And It is hard stuff, but you just chip away at it every day and eventually there's a cut in there. It's amazing. And then you continue down the path and before you know it, it's done. It's great. I love it. Next time on Hearthside Salons, trying to figure out how to wow the powers that be and get past the Hollywood gatekeepers is a full-time job. One way for your film to fly is to impress Drea Clark. Former teacher of music video production at USC, Drea has curated for film festivals like Slamdance, Sundance, LA Film Fest, and the Gina Davis Bentonville Film Festival. She produces too, so she knows firsthand what it takes from both sides. We'll talk about what she looks for, what makes a great festival run, and what makes a film a winner. Special thanks to our graphic and sonic designer, Joel Harris. Our theme music is by Lachey Swing. For more on our script coaching, online concept to pages screenwriting courses, and writing retreats in Italy, again someday, or to be part of our live recording audience, visit us at pagecraftwriting.com, at pagecraftwriting on Instagram, and at pagecraftwrite on Twitter. I'm Heidi from Pagecraft. Thanks for listening and stay well.